Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Do you want to tell us about your patient and what what you ended up doing for the patient? Um, So she had, as a reminder, she had uh, severe precapillary pulmonary hypertension. Um, So in light of her, uh, I think she had W, uh, she had... um, a functional class three symptoms because uh, she was short of breath, um, pretty very easily short of breath. Um, she had the near syncope event, um, so she was started pretty quickly on pH directed therapy uh, with uh, subcutaneous triprostanol as well as tadalafil, and then I think felt better like very quickly. She was able to walk to her car without taking any breaks, like go up the stairs with carrying groceries. Um, um, and she ultimately uh, proceeded to have a lung transplant about two years after I think she established care in pulmonary hypertension clinic. Now, what are your thoughts on, um, I know that you mentioned detect, the detect algorithm. Um, what are your thoughts, uh, whether we should be using detect in that subset of patients? Um, is this just mainly for scleroderma patients? Well, what are your thoughts, Dr. Lewis? Yeah, well, um, you know, I think the DETECT was initially proposed for scleroderma. So, I mean, I personally think that that's probably where the focus should be. Um, there have been other um, screening tools. There's the Australian one, which seems very simple and has been compared to DETECT. So what the Australian one does is that uses uh, NT-proBNP, and it uses the FEC percent over DL percent greater than 1.8 as opposed to 1.6 um, to send to right heart cath. And then there's also the ERS uh, ESC guidelines, which seem, you know, out there, but and are based uh, on TR uh, velocity and other clinical parameters. I think of the various risk uh, strategies, um, DETECT and the Australians seem to come out the best. So I think whatever you use, it's reasonable to screen patients with uh, scleroderma. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there's, I mean, there's sort of two qu- two issues here. One is the, you know, the, the remember, det- DETECT was in asymptomatic patients who had, systemic sclerosis. And the idea is that, I mean, this entity, the scleroderma spectrum of disease, if you will, where, you know, not all these people look alike either, right? They have, and, and Suzanne didn't, didn't show this, uh, I don't think, but, you know, they've homogenized how to label these people, right? So we're all, we all think we're studying the same group there. You have to meet, you know, nine out of X number of criteria to be diagnosed with, with, uh, you know, scleroderma spectrum of disease. Um, once you know you have that, then because it's such a high predilection for developing pulmonary hypertension, um, this is why DETECT was taken on. Just like, okay, these patients are asymptomatic, yet we want to figure out, you know, who, who may have, who may already have a problem um, in that setting. They have systemic sclerosis or greater than, I think it was three years, greater or equal to three years. You know, they had to be asymptomatic. They had to have a diffusing capacity that I think had to be less than 60% and an FVC greater than 40%. So it 
So there was all these criteria they looked at, and they had a whole number of parameters that they came out with, and they whittled it down, um, and they calfed everybody. So that was the beauty of it. And um, so it, it has a pretty strong recommendation uh, because it took a holistic and homogenous approach, right, to these folks. And because it's such a high, you know, predilection for developing, for developing pH, and the idea is if you treat it, the, the, the concept is if you treat it earlier, you might actually change the natural history of it. I guess that's, that's not actually proven, but that's the concept. So... I don't know, Shelly, do you have anything to add to that? Shelly has a perspective of a cardiologist, which I've learned uh, for a lot from Shelly over the years because <clears throat> she has a very simple philosophy that whatever's happening in the lungs, it really doesn't matter. And it's the pulmonary hypertension is pulmonary hypertension, and she's going to treat it as such, regardless of what the lung CT looks like. But because of that, I've seen, I learned a lot, actually, because I think that approach is actually somewhat valid and and her and her approach has uh, uh, taught us a lot from obviously the rheumatologists focus in on these little capillaries we focus in on the cat scans and, and Shelley's approach is look it's it's bad and we're going to treat it and that's been helpful uh, I've learned a lot watching Shelley's practice so Shelley tell us what you what your thoughts are so I think the issue is what constitutes an asymptomatic patient and I think that's where we get very very commonly misled. And the classic example of the mitral stenosis patients who say, I'm fine. And then you ask them what they actually do. And over time, they've cut down what they do so that what they do, they feel good about, but they don't do 90% of what they used to do before. So I think getting some kind of information on what the patient actually does and thinks they're asymptomatic about um, it uh, really helps you because you'll find that many of these patients who you think are just absolutely fine are incredibly symptomatic and they've locked themselves into a tiny little corner. The other thing I use is a BNP and some kind of objective exercise test. So even a simple thing like a six-minute walk is very useful in, in connective tissue disease patients because it's not very challenging, but you'll be shocked when you find out how limited they are and then you then you think through additional diagnostic testing. So I think that's one thing that I would take away. And, and the other point to it is that, that the pulmonary vascular disease has to be approached and attacked from all of the points at which you can modify the pulmonary vascular stuff because as, the, as your right ventricle goes, you go, and what determines how your right ventricle does is the afterload and the vascular bed which it has to work with. And so... I think this approach of, you know, well, we're going to go to prostacyclins first. Well, I think that that's not entirely correct. We go to it pretty quickly. But you can start a PD-5 inhibitor and even a, a, an ERA in a matter of days, and getting approval for prostacyclins and getting people titrated up on it is not a small procedure. So if you think of making an immediate impact on patients, there are a number of things that you can do first. And that's my... Worldview. So, so just to push back on that, if you, if you, what patient, if you saw de novo, an incident case of, of, you know, PAH in the setting of an autoimmune disease, would you say this patient deserves a, pro deserves a prostacycline up front? And in other words, or would you always do a dual oral approach? And then like, how do you, how does it work in real life? So in, in real life, if you're seeing a patient and they're in the hospital 
you can start medication that day with a PDE5 inhibitor while you're getting approval for the prostacycline. You can start prostacyclines, but patients go completely crazy. When, when we used to have approval before we could even start, back in the old days for Flowland, patients stayed in the ICU for days and days and days while we fought it out with the insurance company. And so we started using PDE5s inhibitors. And I actually had an abstract, which we never published because it was socially unpopular, that using a high-dose sildenafil at that time, many of those patients left the hospital without having to initially be started on prostacycline as an inpatient. And it was kind of remarkable. These drugs are underestimated. So I have a very low threshold for starting prostacyclines, but it's something that takes you at least a week or two. So why not use the other things in the, in the meantime and see how much they improve right up front. The other thing is volume status is something that hasn't really been mentioned here at all. And this is a critical part in the management of pulmonary hypertension. Your preload, you know, is a determinant of outcome. In, the, in all the guidelines, the RA pressure predicts survival uh, dramatically. And so getting the preload down with a, with a diuretic and getting some R, improved RV function really makes a difference in terms of how the patient does. So, 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 class four patients. Well, uh, Dr. Lewis are going to comment in a second. But class four patients who end up in a hospital, once you diurese them and put them on maybe one or two oral drugs, particularly the PD five inhibitor pathway, since they're more, you know, faster onset, you can take a class four patient and turn them into a class three patient right. fairly acutely, um, and then you can sort of figure out which way to go from there. What do you think, Dr. Lewis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really depends on the patient's presentation. So I'll just give an anecdote because recently, uh, last Saturday, I went to the wedding of a patient of mine who's age 33. I started seeing her at age 21. She had mixed connective tissue disease. She presented um, when she went with her friends to Disneyland. And, you know, the Disneyland parking lot, as everyone knows, is huge. And she fainted twice going to the ticket office. Nevertheless, even with it, with her friends, she still went to Disneyland. <laughs> but then she told her parents when she came home and they freaked out. And the bottom line is she had an echo, which was critical. And when I heard about it, I admitted her straight to the ICU catheter. Her cardiac index was kind of less than 1.5 and she had critical pulmonary hypertension. We put her immediately onto parenterals. And she's done very, very well as you suggested, it took time. We eventually weaned off parenterals and have her on three, you know, oral agents, and she's now, you know, between class one and class two and at her wedding, even though it gave me, as they say in Yiddish, spilkers, for those who understand Yiddish, um, watching her dance on the dance floor because I was sitting next to a cardiologist and I was saying to him, I think she should cut back on the aerobic exercise, <laughs> particularly on her wedding. But anyway, she did beautifully. And so I think it really depends on the presentation. Yeah. You know, there was also the Flowland Sildenafil study where we put, at the same time they were studying Sildenafil as a, as a primary agent, they also had a, a subset of patients who were on Flowland, and we added Sildenafil to it. And a bunch of those patients came off Flowland and then stayed off Flowland for many, many years. I have several of them that were in the original study. And so 
those patients were functional class four, and they were put on Flolan at the time because there really was no other option. But I think that sometimes we we are able to modify their functional class and, and their status, and I think we have to go with the flow. And if any of you have seen patients chronically on prostacyclines, it's not a pretty life, and you have to think long and hard about it in terms of quality of life issues just from that. Yeah, and I think, you know, we we also are able now to to uh, transition patients from prostacyclines to the oral to oral um, well, for instance, to oral treprostanol. There's there's data for doing or that. Inhaled, or inhaled, or inhaled. Yeah, um, Shelley, there's a question here. I think that you should answer. So, if you had an autoimmune disease patient, let's say systemic sclerosis, just based on the echo alone, what do you what what would what would make you you're probably the wrong person to ask about this, but what would make you on an echo proceed to write our catheterization? I always do. Yeah. <laughs> because, because many of the patients you see with connective tissue disease have other possible complicating factors like hypertension, diastolic dysfunction, whatever. And there are, there's information from the cath that's predictive of outcome. So the cardiac index, the right atrial pressure, um, it provides a, a baseline for where they're going and a firm endpoint. And as an echocardiographer, I can tell you there's a, a tremendous amount of wiggle room in the interpretation of the TR velocities and how accurately they're done. And you don't just want to define it based on just that. You want to have a baseline with hard data that you can then go forward with. And what, and what do you think is the most like, important hard data as we sit here today, like give us three parameters on an echo besides TR velocity that you think are the most helpful for you, just in, whether it's diagnostic or something you follow on echo, just on, echo. On echo? For pH. So the R, RV size and function, whether the RV is very enlarged, what the IVC is, in, in other words, how much right atrial pressure do they have? And then there are other ways that you look at cardiac output directly and indirectly in the echo that gives you a hint um, uh, in terms of looking at whether the patient has any function. But I don't use that exclusively, and I put heavy emphasis on things like BNP to try to improve it, because many of these times you really don't get a good look at the right ventricle. We all talk about how they measure right ventricular ejection and stuff like that. But if you sit and look at them day after day, you can't see these walls very, very well. Yeah. And 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 you you just don't want to be fooled when you're especially if you're committing a patient to prostacyclin, you really want to have some hard data. Yeah, uh, Dr. Hodge, can we get a microphone? Oh, you have it. Great. Thank you, T- Tony Hodge from Cedars. Thank you. Uh, just to add to what Dr. Shapiro said, uh, we get referred from rheumatologists all the time patients with uh, rheumatological diseases, scleroderma mainly, but rheumatological, and maybe I get to cath one out of 10. The reason is because they are referred to us early. Uh, they are referred to us without any signs of pulmonary hypertension. For example, the case that Dr. Kao had presented here, I wouldn't think twice about right heart catheterization. She had right ventricular hypertrophy, uh, right bundle branch block, dilatation of the right ventricle, TR, abnormal RV. This is, you don't need even the detect uh, uh, trial or the ASIG trial. I don't think we need to. It's a personalized medicine. I would go directly to CAF. Having said that, when we are referred patients without any sign, 
like you said, then maybe that's the patient that we need to use the DETECT trial on. Or sometimes, even without it, if you don't see any signs of dyspnea or any sign on the EKG, simple EKG of right ventricular dilatation or abnormality in the conduction, and nothing on the echo, no RV dilatation, no RV uh, dysfunction, uh, and a normal acceleration time, there is no point for us to go for right heart catheterization. This is the patient that, that just follow, watch like a hawk every six to 12 months and take it from there. Yeah, you absolutely, you can enrich it like the detect with BNP and anti-centromere and urates and this and that, but there is no need for them to put them through a, uh, an invasive test and take the risk of cardiac catheterization, which is not negligible. One in a thousand to five in a thousand, not negligible. So, yeah, there was a nice, there was a nice, Chris, uh, you want to add to that? Oh, uh, I was just going to add that there was, there's a nice paper from uh, the Belgian group looking at non-invasive ways to, ma- to diagnose or to, to get the negative predictive value for pH. And they looked at four parameters. One was if the patient's functional class one or two, and if their resting pulse oximetry on room air is above 95%, equal to 95% or above, and if they have an NT pro BNP or a BNP that's normal, and lastly, if they have no evidence of right axis deviation or RVH on a, on a 12 lead, if all of that was true, the chances of having PAH um, on a heart catheterization was less than 1%. So these are like a, it was a simple algorithm that they employed in their, you know, they had a retrospective cohort and then they validated it uh, prospectively, which I thought was pretty helpful. Um, obviously, they had autoimmune disease patients in there too. But, anyways, Rich, you, had a, you want to? Yeah, no, uh, I guess I just thought of a second question. But, Suzanne, you know, I think anytime you hear a talk on rheumatologic disease, you know, you think about immunosuppressive treatments. And obviously, I guess they haven't really panned out in PAH component of. CTD, are there any subtypes that you think might particularly be beneficial with actually immunosuppressive drugs, treating the pulmonary vascular component, or what? Uh, so it is, it's a very good question. I, I think the main patients that I would think about um, to, um, you know, I, I think as far as when it comes to when it comes to vasculopathy specifically, regardless of whether it's heart or uh, sometimes we think the GI, um, uh, although there may be other other reasons for GI involvement, um, immunosuppression has not played, a, we don't think um, it, it plays a role um, historically, at least um, in our patients and treating specifically systemic sclerosis patients. However, um, you know, there has been a rituximab, for instance, trial where um, we had high hopes for it, Um, you know, whether it makes a difference as far as um, uh, pulmonary hypertension uh, patients. But I do think that there were also flawed, um, uh, some flaws in in those clinical trials. So I'm not so sure that I would actually... um, take that to the bank and just make it, um, use it as, um, as a no-go um, for the usefulness of uh, immunosuppression in those patients. Of course, you know, we, whenever we're dealing with scleroderma patients, we always want to 
um, because they're complicated, they, because they can have aspirations, micro aspirations and so on, the use of immunosuppression, we always have to, I, I always tell my patients that I would, I would be just as aggressive as your disease is. Um, and so whenever I, you know, if I'm thinking about a patient that has, that is presenting mainly with a more vasculature uh, component rather than ILD, for instance, it's much easier for me to say, oh, yes, you have a little bit of ILD. Why don't we do this? Um, and then, uh, you know, Rajan showed that there were some tocilizumab trials going on, uh, which is now FDA approved for ILD for patients. So it makes it easier to kind of push and use that and see how how well they do using uh, medications that are FDA approved, for instance, or rituximab for that matter, on top of something like MMF. But of course, there's always that component and there's never answered question of whether which group do they belong into, right? Do they belong in group one? Is this pure pulmonary arterial hypertension? Is there a component of you know, yeah. group three that is going, uh, taking place there? So I... I it's not a it's not a straightforward um, yeah, there, thing. It's really personal. Yeah, there's a growing literature and camp um, supporting the concept that PAH it may be a lot more inflammatory, and I know it's the buzzword, but there's a lot more active inflammation going on in pretty much in all three layers, if you will, of the of the pathology. Um, and that's really what led to the rituxan study. I think if you look at the, just like any studies that we do in PAH, they're not enriched, right? They're, they're given to everybody. So what they found in a lot of these studies, there's, there's people that clearly respond to these drugs. I mean, in that study, the Stanford study with rituxan, which was an NIH multi-center study, but PI'd at Stanford was, uh, they did find a subgroup that responded very well to rituxan. You know, I think it was a low level of rheumatoid factor, and then they had done a whole chemokine analysis, and they, I think they found IL-12 and IL-17 if they were high. You know, people have to, it's, it's individualized stuff. I mean, at some point, there's people who respond to imatinib, there's people who respond to rituxan, there's people, clearly, I mean, we've seen that in the clinical trials. The question is, how do we, how do we enrich these studies, and how do we personalize the approach? Um, so I think you haven't heard, you haven't seen the end of the anti-inflammatory um, sort of push, if you will, for drugs, you know, in PAH. I don't know, Rich, if you want to add to that. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to actually turn it to Mike because, you know. Yeah, we were about to, I was about to do that too. Yeah, but. the last five minutes because, I mean, your stem cell. Uh, yes. And and how many of those patients are scleroderma? And, or, Mike, maybe you want to, maybe you can sort of introduce the concept of the, of the stem cells. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, just to comment on, you know, inflammation and immune dysfunction. I mean, these, the pathology, I've just written a review paper on pathobiology um, of pH. It's very, very complex, and there are probably about 15 headings. But, you know, so clearly not everybody has everything, but you eventually land up in the final common pathway. But there's extensive uh, uh, data on inflammation uh, in patients with pH and also immune dysfunction. So um, the basis for the... Um, stem cell study that uh, many of us are involved in um, uh, here um, was that there is an unmet need. And PAH, um, you know, before there were therapies and CEDARS was part of the NIH registry with Spence Kerner, um, the median survival from the time of diagnosis was 2.8 years. Uh, last year, Hendricks and, and et al., 
published um, the median survival in patients in the PAH treatment era and in three different periods during the era because more and more drugs became available. Basically, the median survival didn't really improve across the three periods, and that the average was 6.2 years. So, you know, and it varied between six and eight. So, you know, even though there's been improvement, there's still, you know, pretty dismal survival. The second thing is if you look at the pathology in patients that either come to transplant or maybe died of an accident and you looked at the lungs, um, there's still marked, marked uh, occlusive arteriopathy, inflammation, et cetera, et cetera, um, plexiform lesions, et cetera, et cetera, in patients on treatment. And then lastly, as we all know, the RV can progress on treatment. And that's been shown by the, you know, the Dutch group um, very, very well. So you can actually, you know, seem to be improving in terms of symptoms and in terms of other parameters. But if you look at, you know, cardiac uh, MR and ejection fraction, it's going down progressively. So there's an unmet need. And so the cells that we use, which are cardiosphere-derived cells, they're heart-derived cells, but they, and they work not by transdifferentiating into you know, tissues to replace, but they work by the release of exosomes, which are microvesicles, that are pretty small, 10 to 100 nanometers in size. And they contain very, very active products, such as microRNAs, non-coding RNAs, key proteins such as VEGF1 and IGF1 and all sorts of things, and even some new non-coding uh, RNAs, um, that, such as the Y-RNA and the PI-RNA that are exceedingly potent. Um, so that's kind of how they, they work. And they are markedly anti-inflammatory, immune-modulating in terms of macrophage function, in terms of... Um, all sorts of uh, you know, anti-inflammatory, antifibrotic, angiogenic, anti-oxidative uh, stress, et cetera, et cetera. And so based on animal studies, there were two that we did. Uh, one was the monocrotaline in which we gave IV CDCs, a uh, very positive study, and then another we gave intracoronary uh, in a sujin hypoxia model where there was RV dysfunction and failure, and there we showed marked improvement in RV function and all the kind of parameters that go wrong within the RV muscle, um, both immunohistochemically and on extensive uh, proteomic studies. So the um, alpha study, which is a phase one study that's completed now, it's, it's virtually been approved by one of the Lancet journals, this, their science discovery journal, eBiomedicine. Um, it's, uh, we gave uh, the CDCs once, um, and we followed patients uh, with endpoints at two months and four months, but followed them over a year. We looked at uh, patients that we thought would have significant inflammatory and immune dysfunction as part of the pathobiology. So this included IPH, HPH. Um, PAH associated with connective tissue disease, of which the majority was scleroderma spectrum, and HIV associated. Um, that covers about 75% of PAH patients. Um, 
the bottom line is we did a phase 1A, which was, you know, just giving the cells um, and increasing the dose. Um, and then we gave phase 1B, which was a double-blind um, placebo trial. Um, the bottom line is, is that we, you know, found very, very encouraging efficacy signals. We did apply parametric statistics, and although we do not infer that, you know, having a, you know, significant p-value indicates efficacy because this is a phase one study, um, we regard it more as connoting, um, you know, highly encouraging data, you know, that warrants movement to a higher phase study where you will actually test um, for efficacy. So the kind of parameters that we found and just by the way, before I mention that, um, the largest group was IPAH, but the second largest group was, uh, as you might expect, PAH associated with connective tissue disease. Um, so we found significant improvement in um, right ventricular end diastolic volume and volume index on cardiac MR. Um, this has been associated um, with uh, uh, survival. And so what happened in the group getting the stem cells, um, it increased, uh, I mean, it decreased significantly, and in the um, uh, placebo group, it increased. So obviously, the lower the volumes, the better. Um, in diffusing capacity, um, in the placebo group, it significantly went down in two and four months and over the, the year. And in the CDC-treated group, um, the diffusing capacity remained rock-stable throughout. Um, there was also a significant increase in six-minute walk by 28 meters on average. All were on combination therapy. In fact, the majority were on triple therapy of 28 meters. Um, and there was a significant decrease uh, at four months in serum creatinine. And then there were um, a 12% improvement in right ventricular fractional uh, area change on echo, the p-value was like 0 0.06 something, so not quite significant. And on cardiac MR, there was an 8% improvement in RV ejection fraction, which was also like p point you know zero six something. And then we had encouraging signals in TAPSI, and we had also encouraging signals in the quality of life measure and the symptom score for camphor the Cambridge uh, quality of life measure specific for pH. Um, and um, we looked at discovery proteomics, um, which did tend, although it's, you know, pilot data this, at two weeks it did tend to show that there was significant changes with regard to improving, uh, you know, innate immune uh, function and also a decrease in uh, inflammation, but also a whole host of parameters. That's really, yeah, that's was really, really cool, novel stuff, Dr. Lewis, that you're engaged with and we're, you know, really happy to be part of the study and stuff. I think, I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on. And this is, I mean, now you're just going to enter, you know, the next phase of, of, uh, of this in a larger format. So it's going to be really cool to see, um, to see how yeah, others and then plays well, out. Just one thing to just mention for the phase two and three that you guys are going to be involved in. 
we are going to do two things, or three things. One, we're going to give repeated doses because based on our Duchenne muscular dystrophy trial, we gave repeated doses in the kids, and they had improvements in skeletal limb muscle and improvements in the heart because patients with Duchenne get cardiomyopathies. Um, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to have, as an entry criteria, patients should have some parameter either on echo or on um, cardiac MR of um, RV dysfunction, because I think that's an unmet group. And thirdly, we can, within the context of the study, look and contrast um, scleroderma-associated pH with IPH. And the reason we, I think that's a good idea, is that, as we know, with scleroderma-associated pH, the outcomes... Uh, tend to be worse, although there's newer data showing improvement over what was previously reported. Um, but also, if you look at the cardiac myocyte in patients with scleroderma, um, there's marked impairment. Um, if we look at uh, contractility, EES, uh, compared to IPH, it's significantly reduced. If you look at VA coupling in scleroderma-associated pH compared to IPH, it's significantly reduced. And then if you look, take the cardiac myocytes and you do uh, in vitro studies and look at contractility with skin myocytes, there's markedly decreased contractility, indicating that the sarcomeric apparatus is completely abnormal. So, you know, this will also be a good uh, group uh, to study. Yeah, lots to come, lots to come. All right, I think we're a little bit over, but let's get to lunch, and thank you. I want to thank the panel, and uh, we'll grab some lunch, and thank you, everybody. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME, LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit, or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.